back to another episode of Say Your Story. I'm Dean Stevens. That music brought to you by a local band here in Charleston, Bullets Benign. Thanks again to them for allowing us uh, to use their music, Bullets Benign. Give them a, uh, a check if you're ever in town. They play uh, in and around Charleston quite a bit. Uh, as for today, uh, we are uh, talking to a community member here in our podcast studios at, uh, at Ripple, the Ripple Fund. It's a nonprofit incubator here in uh, downtown Charleston where we uh, kind of help uh, nonprofits uh, do what they need to do at a greater level, help them raise brand awareness, uh, whatever they need. We are here for them. And uh, Keith Smalls, who runs My Community's Keeper, it's a, a local nonprofit. They work at a ripple with us. Um, he has put together a mentoring program, and it was all shaped by his journey, his experience, a journey experience um, much like very few that you will meet. He lost his son to gun violence one year after he was released from prison. He spent 19 years behind bars and is now an instrumental figure at MUSC uh, in a program they established uh, right here in the Low Country uh, over there at the hospital. Uh, but for me, I am uh, proud to be able to call him a friend. Uh, I'm honored that he is a part of our Ripple family. Be prepared for an emotional, powerful 50 minutes as Keith Smalls says his story. I can't thank you enough for, for coming in. Can't thank you enough for sitting down. Can't thank you enough for, um, I know, your honesty, your courage, and what you do for this community. Yeah, yeah appreciate it, man. Uh, means a lot to be able to do the things that I do. Uh, but, um, you know, it cost a lot as well. Yeah, the cost was almost too much. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's so many different places we could start. I mean, the cool thing about uh, you and I, we just met a couple months ago, three months ago, right? And these are the three things that I know, the four things I know about you, right? And I haven't even done a deep dive. I know that uh, you served time. I know you lost your son to gun violence. I know that you work at MUSC. And I know that you have an awesome nonprofit called My Community's Keepers, right? Correct. That's all I know. Wow. I know. And when I said well, this is going to be 30 minutes, but we could talk for three hours, like, it's for sure, right? It's for sure. For sure. Easily for sure. Um, let's do this. Mm -hmm. What was that TED Talk like? It was, um, you know, it was surreal type of thing because... You know, people were surprised to know that I am a TED Talk guy. I've been watching TED Talks for years. Never thought in a thousand years I'd ever be on the stage doing a TED Talk, right? But, you know, once I got there, I was just like, I was real stoked. I was zoned. I was excited. The process was long because of COVID, and we had to delay and push it back for like a year. Mm. So we get to live in the moment for a little bit longer until it was finally showtime. So, but that actually helped, actually helped me become more prepared. But it was just like crazy. It's just like sometimes it's almost like unbelievable that I did that. Still, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's it was Charleston just, TED Talk. Charleston TED. Were you talk. nervous? Very nervous. Were you really? I was nervous, and I think I call those guys geniuses. You know, the um, the, the you know the people who organize it, because I was nervous until the actual day. Because the day before, they allowed us to do a run-through with 500 high school students. Oh, cool. So that kind of got all the jitters out because those high school students, out of 500, maybe 20 listen. The other one on their phone and mm -hmm. sleeping. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and so, you know, you were sitting here worrying about trying to get your, your talk off and not miss nothing. And those kids wasn't even paying attention to us. <laughs> so it was like almost like, a perfect type of scenario that they put us in front of because the next day almost nobody made a mistake. Everybody was just so on point. But we realized how much the day before helped us with the 500 students. So I wasn't as nervous as I thought I was going to be the actual day because I thought I felt like I got all my nerves out the day before. So you're nervous about, I'd be nervous about time-wise, right? Because you got to be, you got to hit what, 15 minutes? 10 minutes. That's a lot. That's a lot of life in ten minutes. A lot of life in ten minutes. So, 
you know, that was the thing about being able to get your time and not messing up because, you know, they don't want you to memorize what you're going to say. Right. You have to have talking points and be able to talk from one point to the next. So it's hard not to memorize it, right? But mm-hmm. then when you do, if you mess up, you'll find yourself scurrying, trying to f- remember where you left off at. You right. Know? So, um, you know, it was one of those things. It wasn't so much the clock. It was the don't memorize it, but, you know, you make sure you get your points. And what did it do for you personally? Um, I don't know. You know, so it didn't, like, it, you know, it did take me personally to a different place. It made you know made me look at okay, Keith, because a lot of my people in my organization and you know a lot of my friends and peers say I don't really, you know, um, I don't never slap myself on the back. I don't never really mm-hmm. say that I've accomplished things. Um, I don't, you know, do any of that celebrating moments, and that for me was a moment that I couldn't deny. I yeah. had to celebrate it. Um, so, you know, it, it did that for certain. It gave me something that I couldn't even, I can't hide the, the opportunity to celebrate that. But, um, but it also was really a reward for me to be able to speak to the group that I was able to speak to because I had so many people who came to me who, you know, definitely wasn't from my culture, my way of life. Most of them weren't from my race. Um, the age group was over 50, you know, predominantly. And so they were really moved by my talk. And actually, I got a standing ovation. <laughs> that day, I was the only standing ovation. And it was crazy. I didn't even realize they Ever stood. had a standing ovation in your life? And never. Well, I did. Tell me. So I, had a, I spoke at um, a gun violence convention at a mm. cathedral in Columbia for Moms to Man Action in every town. And that was in the beginning of my opportunities that I had gotten to share my story and speak. And I was at a cathedral in Columbia, and I got a standing ovation there. Powerful. Powerful, you know. Tears in your eyes. I cried. That was, you know, again, that was like in the beginning of, you know, me kind of transitioning into a speaker and, you know, really telling my story and really feeling like, okay, this is where I should be, you know, using my story as you know, something that others can see that motivate and inspire them and also, you know, bring people to the movement. Where'd you grow up? North Charleston, South Carolina. Ackerby is the subdivision. I remember. Neighborhood, yeah. Went to North Charleston High School? Actually, I went to North Charleston High School for maybe a week or two. (laughs) Then I dropped out, um, got in trouble. um, How old were you? I was 14. First time you got in trouble? 14, you know. Because what my mother was going through, not actually having a home of her own, and me not living. Tell me about that. She, well, my mother, you know, she used drugs. She sold drugs. She um, has a very deep-rooted street um, background, um, you know. So I was in a foster home when I was in um, elementary school. So you know, she was able to, you know, convince the courts that she deserved, you know, to have her kids back with her. And we were able to, you know, come back home for a period of time. But, you know, eventually I left to live with my best friend. Um, And, you know, when I caught the charge that I caught as a juvenile. What was it? It was a possession of cocaine. 14? 14. Using it? No. Just selling it? Selling it. Never used. For somebody else? Yeah, for somebody else. And myself. Really for myself. So I moved to New York. When I was you know, 15 years old, I lived with my uncle when I went to high school in New York. So I went to North Charleston for maybe two weeks, three at the most. Mm. And then I moved to New York and went to high school in New York Park West High School. Park West. Rough for, school? Rough school. Metal detectors. Yeah. Mm. Come through there with metal detectors at the front door. Do you keep on taking the straight road? Do you take the curved road? I curved. You know, I curved. I, you know, my ninth grade year was short because I came in the middle of the year. But my test score said that I was a smart kid. They put me in Regents classes. Um, I was in college bond and in chess club. Stuff that I spoke about in my TED talk. Um, but eventually I uh, kind of drifted even in the 10th grade and college bond courses. Um, 
you know, it was incidental. It wasn't really instinct. It was wasn't purpose like, but it happened the way that it happened for a reason. I got in a fight one day in a classroom. You know, my first ever fight in the school, I think it was, and um, mm. and it was a big kid, and I, you know, I did the Charleston scoop on him, you know, so they was like, they ain't seen that before, cause they, you know, they just never seen it. In this. And what is a Charleston scoop, by the way? When you, you know, you kind of face to face a guy, and you like, you know, you do that little head fake, like you, you know, and then you go for his legs, and you there take, you go. and you on top of him, you know, in a matter of seconds, you know, so. And this kid seeing me, seeing the fight happening, and I'm on top of the kid. I wasn't going to hit him. I just scooped him. I won. You know, when you scoop, you win, you know. So I um, <laughs> <laughs> I knew I already had won the fight. They, you know, so the guy grabbed me and was like, run, yo, run. And I was running with him. I don't even know who he was or where I was running to. But I was running. Security came, and they didn't know where we went at. And next thing you know, I'm in a part of the high school I'd never been in before. And I'm looking. I'm like, where is this at? And, you know, it was something called a small gymnasium when they had the handball courts and the weights. But this was always also a haven for the gang in the, in the school. Mm. And they were actually called Decepticons. So it was a gang called Decepticons. And next thing you know, I became a Decepticon. Mm. So then came the kind of trajectory, the downhill, you know, um, you know, the lifestyle of a Decepticon and cutting class. So... You know, I did good for that first part of school, and the second part wasn't so well. So, um, didn't stay in high school for two years, maybe. And then, but because my test scores were so high, the dean at my school, we didn't have principals. We had three deans, mm-hmm. and they were like, you know, we can't give up on Keith. We have to try to help him. And they got me into Job Corps in a matter of six months, which was big. You know, I didn't have to get on the waiting list. They was able to talk to people at the Job Corps, which was in Brooklyn, in Flatbush, New York. So I went to Job Corps almost immediately after I got dismissed from school. So um, you know, I spent a lot of time in, in, you know, the school system in New York, whether, you know, actual school or the Job Corps. But so that was a part of the, that, that, that early New York experience. And the length behind bars, 17 years? 19 and where did that happen? Down when I, I decided to come back to Charleston, South Carolina. And maybe I came down in 1993 because I moved to New York in 1989. I came back in 1993 for my grandmother's funeral. Um, and when I came home, you know, I was looking in the neighborhood. You know, my, I was living with my uncle and my aunt in New York. So he took custody of me um, when I was 15. And then when I came back, right, I get to see, you know, Charleston has changed. I'm like, what's going on? You know, it's a whole new ball game. So I was like, all right. So, then, you know, and they took me around to where my mother was at. She still wasn't living up. She didn't have her own home. She was living with a friend of hers, um, which was in the neighborhood, not too far from the neighborhood, which I raised up in Acabee. And, um, you know, so, you know, she, my, my uncle dropped me off with my mom, let me spend the night. But, you know, I left that night and went to my old neighborhood. And I'm looking at my old neighborhood, and you got like 60, 70 guys just standing on the corner. And this is like, you know, this is the crack game now. It was crack cocaine lifestyle. Because when I left Charleston in 1989, it wasn't crack. It was just, you know, it was part of cocaine. And, and, and then at this time, 1993, you know, the crack epidemic was hardcore in my neighborhood. So, you know, but I left and I went back to New York and then, you know, somehow a kid from my high school I met in New York on the Bronx and, you know, just went all day and he was involved in, you know, in the drug game and, you know, I didn't know it at first, but then when we started to hang out, he showed it to me and next thing you know, I'm like, oh, wow, you know, I can do this and take this back to Charleston. Mm. And so 1994, Super Bowl Sunday, um, I had came back and then... Um, had crack with you? Crack with How me. much? Oh, I had, you know, a lot. A lot. <laughs> you know, <laughs> a, a lot. And um, a childhood friend of mine, you know, he had made a deal with law enforcement. And, um, you know, so he you know, he set me up coming from um, off the Amtrak. And um, I was in the news and newspaper. But uh, I didn't get anything. I didn't, I got five years for that, right? I, I did three years and seven months, but I hadn't. I didn't learn a, a thing, you know. At that time, prison was like job corps. You know, mind you, I had just been to job corps, so it was almost right. identical. I still had street clothes. You had jewelry. You had money. You would get paid twice a month. You know, eighteen seventy five. Every two weeks, you would get paid. 
you know, for doing nothing. It was just like job course. So I I didn't learn a thing. You know, I came home and and I came home on on a Monday, I think Tuesday I was back in Ackerby in the streets. So um I caught a trafficking charge in nineteen ninety nine, another trafficking in two thousand and then I went back to prison. So in essence I did, you know, you know, and I always say nineteen years, but you know, I did three years and seven months. I came home for like eighteen months and went back to prison with twenty nine years. That was reduced to 18 years and of that 18 I did 15 years and 6 months so that's how I do the math 15 and 6 months yeah yeah to the 3 and the 6 so that's 18 19 years so um so when you got out of that 19 years mm-hmm. right yeah then what happens well you know um Did you figure it out I figured it out definitely you know what I'm saying that last stint was heavy for me it was loaded it was helpful um I was able to you know, you know, really acquire a lot back there at that time. I, uh, you know, I went worked in a school building for years. I was a teacher assistant. I even had my own classroom. I worked in the library. I created programs in prison. I created a mentor program at one of the institutions that I were at for at-risk youth, for youth, youth offenders, and it was called So You Call Yourself a Man by T.D. Jakes. That, I drafted it from the T.D. Jakes book, So You Call Yourself a Man. Um, and, you know, um, so when I came home, I had ingested a lot of great stuff. I had some chaplains who were my mentors. And I looked who was at um, chaplains who were over the churches and the prisons. Mm, those, oh, gotcha. Yeah, those were the people who I had, you know, they became mentors to me. And, and people I would talk to almost every day, every chance that I could get. Um, and they reached you. Yeah, they reached me. Definitely did. Um, and, and the time, the isolation. Um, I created this, this, uh, I, I had a title for my time in prison. I call it the, the, uh, evolution of Keith Smalls. And I had a theme song by Jennifer Hudson says, I got this. People like Jennifer Hudson, yeah, man, you gotta listen to the song. It says, I got this. So that was my theme song and my title of my time in prison was called the evolution of Keith Smalls. So I, you know, when I was just like really determined, you know, to, you know, transform, transition, and, you know, become, you know, a better man. I always said that prison makes either a better man or a better criminal. And I knew that. In that you, t- knew the, you knew the better criminal part. I knew the better criminal part. I had an idea about the better man part. I didn't know it because I wasn't a man at all. I was a kid. I was of age. I was an adult, but I wasn't a mm-hmm. man. I didn't have the characters that I needed, the characteristic traits that I needed. So, you know, I but I made a decision to become a better man, and that's where my work was at. Um, and I worked diligently every day to become a better man. And when I came home, I, I was that. Um, but, again, I wasn't prepared for the world that I was coming home for. I couldn't prepare what for What year that. was that? It was 2015. Mm. Um, you know, I, I just couldn't prepare for it because I had no idea where I was coming home to. Yeah, a lot of changed. A lot has changed. Um, my son... My family, really my son more than anything, you know, he had been going through a lot in my absence. So in twenty fifteen, how old was he? He was sixteen. I left, he was one. And then he died a year later. Yeah, twenty sixteen. I came home twenty fifteen, he was sixteen, he died in October twenty sixth, twenty seventeen. He was seventeen years old, which is maybe a, a week or two away. Mm. And that was North it was a Dorchester Road? Dorchester Off, Road. Yeah. Dorchester Wheeler neighborhood where he was murdered. Gun violence. By a 15-year-old shot in his back three times. That you never forget. I never forget it. Phone call. Phone call. I was at Trident Tech. I was a, uh, I was, you know, I was a freshman in college hmm. at the ripe age of 41. I was taking up small business, entrepreneur, and also graphic design. And, um, I was in class and I was getting out of class, walking to the bus stop. Matter, matter of fact, right around the corner from here, um, where Payless Shoe Store used to be, I was standing mm-hmm. at that bus stop and I got a phone call. Who called? Um, a young lady that he was um, mm. in a relationship. Oh, she had called earlier and said that, you know, well, my daughter called me first. And, you know, that was one of those things. And she called, she was actually in school when. 
somebody she found out that Mari had gotten shot and that he was dead and she called me crying and I was at work because I was working at day going to school at night and I was working and I was on Bees Ferry working for this construction company and I got the phone call and I was like a pipe fitter so I was just like 30 maybe 20 feet in the ground putting these 60 inch pipes down and you know and you know I was like you know, I'm not one. You know, you're really not supposed to be on your phone when you're doing it because it's dangerous. But when I see my daughter's name come up, I said I have to ask her. I don't know if it's an emergency, and of course it was. And then she said she was crying. Mari's dead. I was like, What are you talking about, Mari? What's going on? And then you know, I got out the hole that I was in, and I was just like, Hold up! And I went, and I was like, You know, my brother was actually working with me. My oldest brother, he had gotten me the job, and he was like, You know, what's going on? Because I was like, Man. You know, I don't know. So I was like, well, let me find out. And I hung up the phone for my daughter. And she, I tell my brother, because he was right there, like, you know, you know, almost in the same type of panic that I was. And I was like, man, I told him what she told me. And I was like, man, let me call and find out something. So I called the same young lady um, who my son had, you know, relations with. And she was like, no, Mr. Keith, Mari, all right. And then something happened in the wheel. And, and, you know, they said Mari was around, but that wasn't Mari. He good. So I was like, all right, cool. So I called my daughter back and told her, nah, Mo, everything good. And Mari, good. And she's like, you sure, Daddy? I was like, yeah, yeah. You know, she was like, all right, all right. So cool I'm good I'm like okay you know dodged the bullet there you know so I left work you know go about my day again I I still hadn't talked to him I just said you know when she said he was good I believe what she said because mm-hmm. you know he's around her a lot and um I went to school you know I left work go straight to school um in my class you know normal class day and class is over and I'm walk to the bus stop and I'm just actually standing at the bus stop now I'm standing there waiting on the bus to come and that same young lady who I had talked to earlier who told me that he was fine called me and was crying and said that Mari was dead mm. so um, you know I went straight to the scene um, and you know I was hit with the harsh reality about you know what we see on TV you think on NYPD Blues and all these different shows when you have a body someplace and, you know, they come and pull this, you know, sheet over or you get to let you see it. It's not the case. You know, the coroner has to come pronounce death if that individual is dead. And you still don't get to see them until the wake. So I didn't know when we sat there for hours because the coroner wasn't in the proximity. It was so far away. But somehow, you know, the law enforcement officers are seeing the crowd that was coming. A lot of my family was there, my friends and stuff had came. And uh, so because of, you know, all that was people were there, they decided to kind of ask us to give us something, that, an indicator. And um, my son's sister from his mother was there, and she was like, well, I got this tattoo that he has on his arm. And we showed that picture to the law enforcement officer, and they were like, yeah. So, mm. you know, yeah. 2015, seven years ago? It was 2016, actually. 2016, that's right. Yeah, October 2016, October 26. How did you get from that day to where you are today at MUSC in the Violence Prevention Program? H is for heroes. This is the day I just seen this. I didn't even know who did it and that they did it. How do you get to there? How do you get to there from that day? Because you could have done, you could have gone back to that bad criminal. I could have gone back, man. It was just right there. That was the most opportunistic time. You know, you know, payback, retaliation. You know what I mean? You know, you know from the streets, through you know, this guy fathers, not just the, you know, who, where y'all feel like, you know. But you know, what was it? It had know, to be something. Well, you know, and you know, it's more than just something. I, I, I remember when I was in prison. You know, there was always these challenging conversations and questions that all these guys would get, where they would always say, "You can't never say you ain't going back to jail." You know, I mean, I didn't. I was never really a part of the beginning of those conversations, so I don't know how they started. But people would always come and get me to defend them. <laughs> and I'd be sitting in there, but I'd be like, man, hey, Kilo, man, hey, 
hey, man, look here for a second. And then I would just come up and be like, what's up? Man, I'm gonna try to say you can't ever. Cause I always let people know I'm live coming back to jail. You know what I'm saying? The boys will say like, so you mean to tell me if somebody um, rape your daughter, you ain't gonna go, you ain't gonna do nothing to him. I said, bro, somebody raped my daughter and I killed him. Like, who gonna help her heal? You know what I'm saying? Then, mm -hmm. you know, so, you know, my mind was always like, you know, I'm not going back to jail because you don't have to go back. That was your choice. You said choice earlier in this yeah. conversation. Yeah. Your choice was, I'm not going back. I'm not going back. What's going on? I'm not going back. Penitentiaries are made for some people, not all people, but just the individual's choice. And I knew it wasn't, you know, a place that I wanted to be. It wasn't a place that I needed to be. I didn't have to be in prison. I didn't have to do the things that make you go to prison. So, you know, what happens next? And my son is dead. I know enough now that, you know, if I do anything to anybody that's premeditated, I've thought about it. Um, but I didn't have to give it a second thought because, again, the evolution of Keith Smalls, I had became somebody totally different. So and, You had your Jennifer Hudson moment. I, I got this. <laughs> I got this. And that was, that was for then, but even now, I was like, I got this. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And, you know, my thing was like, I got this too. You know, I'm not really worried about that, you know? So I just... I just was like, you know, grain of salt, you know, not so much grain of salt. That was a mountain. That was like, I cried for days, I still cry. But I can't, I got three daughters. What am I gonna do? You know, I'm gonna go back to prison because that's what happens. Like, I'm not going back to prison. I don't have to go back. And I knew that was my choice. Let me read this. This came out today. It was uh, on social media under the South Carolina Hospital Association. H is for heroes. It's a pretty good picture of you, man. Keith is the definition of a healthcare hero. As a member of the MUSC Health Turning the Tide Violence Intervention Program, he goes above and beyond to support patients and families that experience community gun violence. As the first hospital violence intervention program in South Carolina, Keith has helped make it successful in providing support to over 170 patients, hundreds of family members, enrolled nearly 50 youth and young adults for long-term wraparound services that are aimed to prevent death, violent injury and improve outcomes after injury. He's devoted to his patients, families, and extending violence prevention education and trauma-enforced care with healthcare staff and trainees. He defines what it is to bridge life experience and community understanding into the healthcare setting to address social determinants of health. They wrote that about you. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's crazy. So you take that path over the last six years, right, which also includes your nonprofit. Which is how we got connected, yeah. right? You want to share with everybody about that? Well, you know, I think it was the moment where I was in prison and I seen the um, the impact that the that you know I didn't call it a program at the time. It was just like what we were doing with the you know. So you call yourself a man, um, and it was one of those things where I was at a prison where youthful offenders were at. And in the cafeteria, they had this digital screen that would show, you know, different, you know, updates, weekly, monthly updates. And, you know, they would always say character of the month. And they would have that. And one day I was in the chapel and we were getting ready for some kind of event. And I was looking in the closet and I found the same characters of the month that were displayed in the cafeteria. But they were workbooks attached to them. And I was like, well, dust and cobwebs in this box of stuff. And I was like, why are we not doing anything with this? So I took it out. And I told the I said, chap, I said, well, you know, what's up with this? Can I do something with this? He was like, sure. So I went to an older guy in the, community, in, the, in the dorm who I knew we would talk about, you know, you know, mentoring and building character and individuals. And we decided to go inside the youthful offended YOA dorm and start doing these monthly character meetings about the characters of the month that were displayed in the cafeteria that I knew that they would see. And then now we have conversations about it. And, um, and, and, and that, I think that stuck to me because I didn't take it from there though, but it stuck with me though. And when I came home and you know, the things that happened to me with my son and me being away from prison and, you know, I did a press conference after my son's murder and, you know, channel, all the news stations were there. Hmm. And, um, it was one of those things where, you know, first time my voice was heard and people were like, okay, you know, you know, this guy has something to say and something to give. And like, All right, you know, and then, so, you know, then um, my son was on probation for possession of a, um, 
stolen goods. Somebody stole a phone and gave it to him. He tried to sell it at school. And his probation officer told me about an organization called the CJCC. He was like, you know, me and him would have these great conversations. And he was just like, you know, Keith, you know, maybe this should interest you, you know. And I became a member of the CJCC, Charleston County Criminal Justice Coordinating Council, which I'm still a member. And I'm actually on the executive committee as the vice school chairman. But um, I had met, you know, a lot of amazing people there from the chamber, um, College of Charleston, you know, solicitor's office, public defenders. It was just, you know, that's the particular, that's the, just the everyday membership. And, you know, someone said to me, he said, Keith, you ever thought about getting your own nonprofit? And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. What is but I knew what a nonprofit was, but I never really looked at it as something that I can you know, you can kind of develop and bring some of those things um, that I had worked on in prison. But um, I did a lot of consultations um, with different individuals and worked with others. And, you know, you know, and I was always a researcher and a writer. Those were two of my favorite tools. You know, I research a lot and I write a lot. And then all of a sudden it just started to come together. And I was like, OK, this looks like it really be impactful. Um, and. Um, in fact, some of the programs that we had in prison, not only that character class, but family rules and relationships. We had a program at Libra Correctional Institution called Money Smart, and I was able to incorporate those into my community's Keeper Mentor group um, and be able to convince some really um, amazing educators, um, you know, advocates, you know, everyday people to be a part of this journey, this mission, this organization that we have called My Community's Keeper Mentor Group. So Deal with young men and young women. Young men, young women. Seen them here. High risk. Um, some come from my job, MUSC, who've been victimized by gun violence. Others come through DJJ who have um, are looking for diversions from detention. I was in the courtroom yesterday with a juvenile helped him divert from the juvenile detention to coming home. Um, and I'll be working with him. He will be working within our organization. So, um, yeah, we do a lot of the boys, girls, uh, you know, basketball after dark. We have I know, you had that partnership with the city, North Charleston Police Department and the neighborhoods, associations. Um, so, you know, so far, you know, we've been – able to make a mark we're looking forward to the needle moving but it's been it takes time takes time right you know you've seen that yeah. you know what it takes to move the needle yeah. yeah so being part of musc and being exposed to to gunshot victims right from a personal side it's got a trigger every time you walk into that room mm -hmm. but you are able to move past that because there's a greater good here that you serve to these families Right? Mm -hmm. Seem like you're going into these rooms more often than ever before? Yes. Way more often. Way more often. Too much. I mean, you know, the program exists because of the high, you know, capacity of gun violence in this city, in the state, because we deal with individuals outside of the city. So, um, you know, it's too much, um, you know, over. And they're I'm young. Young. You know, most of my patients, I have over 40 to 50 individuals signed up in the program, and they're all, you know, in a sense, juveniles, uh, 14, 15, 16 years old, 17, 18. You know, I don't have I don't have one patient that's over 25 years old, and I have over 40. Not one of them are over 25, but they're neither under 12. And so when you talk about 40 patients, that goes back how long? A year. A year. Well, I've seen over 170, 200 patients, but to be able to sign them up for the program, not everybody is willing to sign up. Even after that type of tragedy, not everybody is willing to say, sure, you know, I'm willing to be a part of the Turning the Tide program. Gun violence, not just a problem here, yeah. right? It's a problem everywhere. Um, Charleston police get together, North Charleston police get together. We walk, we talk, we meet, we have press conferences. But where's the answer? Social economics, you know, um, you know, poverty is real. Uh, you know, to an extent, I think it began as something intentional. It was something intentional. It was systematic. Um, and you know, you uh, now we have this new conversation about diversity, equity, and inclusion. 
you know, using an equity lens, being inclusive and having diversified, you know, workforce and system. Um, and that was brought to the table, you know, in the last couple of years because of a lot of the, you know, uh, racial uh, murders and, you know, mm-hmm. killing of, by law enforcement. But, you know, now this, the, the city, the state, the country that we live in is starting to look at, you know, what they had created, you know, and um, and there lies the answer. Um, you know, you, 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 you look at where I work at, and, you know, over... 170, 200 patients that I've seen, I've only seen two Caucasians. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, dealing with DJJ, I'm also a juvenile arbitrator working with the solicitor's office. And Saturday we had a conference and I was speaking to a uh, public, a juvenile public defender. Um, and she was talking about her doing this uh, audit in a sense of her caseload over 12 years. And she said, you know, 98% of her caseload is African-American youth. Um, So, um, you you, you can say, okay, you know, is that the only place where crime is happening at? No. Um, So, you know, it's a lot of systematic stuff that, you know, um, that we're dealing with. You know, so when you say, what's the answer? It's just like, you know, uh, is society willing to balance the scale? Are they willing to actually give, you know, equal justice, um, equal share of opportunity? Um, you know, we uh, decriminalize poverty, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. We criminalize, you know, people who don't have, people who lack. Um, in every system, healthcare, education, mm-hmm. housing. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they're really willing to do that, then you will become... You know, you will see needles move, but there lies our answer. It's the bigger picture, um, but it's not a black or white issue per se. But it is. Um, I, I got to quote that from Little Baby. I love the song, The Bigger Picture. But um, we went from Jennifer Hudson to Little Baby today. Yeah, that's my anthem. It's bigger than black and white. There's a problem with the whole way of life. We can't change overnight, but we got to start somewhere. Why not start here? We done had a hell of a year, so you know. Um, but we got to start somewhere. And I think we're beginning to start it. The hard conversation is about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And how, what does that look like? You know, being inclusive, you know, diversifying, you know, you know, um, equity, using an equity lens when we look at a lot of these systems, you know, when how they have been, you know, designed and function, you know, for one class or race and not for other. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, now, you know, you add, you know, guns into equation. I mean, you know, I always tell kids that I work with that, you know, I was raised in a drug culture. You know, drugs were everywhere. You know, I remember when I was arrested in 2000, April, every neighborhood in Charleston, you had 10 to 20 individuals, young black males on the corner with drugs. Now we live in gun culture. So, you know, you go in every neighborhood. More guns than drugs. More guns than drugs. So. And they're settling their differences by pulling the trigger, and they forgot about the Charleston scoop. They forgot about the Charleston scoop. They forgot about the Charleston scoop, man. They, you know, you know they don't. You know, we talk about the Charleston scoop, and they don't. <laughs> so, but again, that's the conflict resolution. Conflict resolution. Um, you, know, you talk about that in your programs, I know. I, thought, I talk about conflict resolution in there. I talk about, you know, I, you know. My program comes from a scripture, one of my favorite. I think it is my favorite. I won't even say I think I know it's my favorite scripture. It says, that which is in you is greater than that which is in the world. And that's something that went with my evolution to Keith Smalls in prison. Uh, when I was in prison, after doing a certain amount of time, you considered a convict. After doing 10 years, you can convict. I wouldn't let nobody call me a convict. In fact, I wouldn't let them call me an inmate. You know, you, my name is Keith Smalls. You, you know, I have a number, but, you know, that which is in me is greater than that which is in the world. And the world had defined me as an inmate and a convict and, you know, trafficker, trafficker, yep. you know, violent offender. The world had said that I was all these things. I didn't accept it. I knew what was in me was greater than whatever the world had for me. And that's what I give in my program. And I always talk about establishing, maintaining power, trust, and respect. 
the power that's invested in me, the power to say no, that I won't go back to jail, the power to say, yes, I will be good. Yes, I will be great. Yes, I will do the right thing. Yes, I will learn. You know, No, I won't use drugs. No, I won't sell drugs. No, I won't shoot. And that's our conversation and our programs, You know, establishing and maintaining power invested in you, trust and respect. But we talk about you know, conflict resolution within that, cognitive behavior, behavior therapy within that, mm-hmm. um, restorative circles within that, healing circles within that, um, those conversations with the youth that we serve. And that's why I love you, right? Because you can sit here and you can say it, right? People don't talk about this stuff on Facebook. Okay. People don't talk about this on social media, right? Car looks good. Vacation looks great dinner looks fantastic but the reality is what's happening in our community and thousands of communities around us is that we're losing young people black white yellow doesn't matter we're losing young people and that's where the the treasure is right the treasure and you've proven that hey man you can go down that track you can go down that path you can do it and figure it out and make that choice like nope Yep. I'm walking away from it, you yep. know, and very, very few people walk away from it. Very, very few people. In fact, gun violence is the leading cause of death in America. It has superseded car accidents. Guns are the number one cause of mechanism of death, um, superseding cars now in America. I don't know if we ever thought we would get to a place where gun violence and gun violence is preventable. Uh, We can say car accidents are preventable, but car accidents are more likely less preventable than gun violence. Mm -hmm. But gun violence is way more preventable. So, you know what I mean? But now that's the leading cause of death in America. You catch grief on the street? I do. You do, don't you? I catch a lot of grief. Right? Yeah. Because more gangs here than people want to talk about more gangs people want to recognize oh and, definitely i catch grief on that side but not so much that much grief on that side on I, the gang side yeah i don't catch that much grief on that i mean you know those kids a lot of the kids that i deal with don't want to be where they're at they almost feel like they don't have a choice so you know you know i catch grief because i i call a spade a spade you know <laughs> you know i don't That's another reason i love you yeah, I don't socialize just for the sake of socialization. I don't do a lot of the social media stuff. You know, I don't like the people say you're doing so much stuff and we don't really know it, Keith. I don't put it on social media because I don't do it for social media. But they say, well, people have to know about it. But I don't want a thousand likes. You know, I want come out in the thousands. When we do an event in a community, if you come out with as much likes, if you give me on social media in that community, people will be like, whoa. We can make a difference. We can make a difference. This looks something like something's going on here. But that's effort too, right? You know how much effort it takes to like something on social media? Nah. Nah. You can do it by mistake almost. Right. But coming out to an event, gun violence event is intentional. Mm-hmm. You know, and bringing your family. Bringing your family. Something that I always talk about when I speak at my event. In fact, we have one coming up on the 22nd, a gun violence event, which we do annually where my son was murdered in that neighborhood. It's called a day to be raw. A day to be remembered, a day to be aware. 22nd of? October to next Saturday. Not this Saturday, but next Saturday. So, um, but, you know, um, I always say that at that event, in any event that I speak at, you know, I always talk about is this who we are or is this who we're becoming? And if this is who we're becoming, then we can deal with, you know. We can stop it. We can stop it. If this is who we are, we got to have drastic measure type of, you know, you know, appeal and effect and action. We got to be drastic about it. But always say this, you know, if this is who we're becoming, then, you know, we can kind of slow roll it. You know, we can just deal with this part. If you come here next year, bring somebody with you. Maybe bring two or three people. If this is who we're becoming, you know, we can slow. But if this is who we are, we can't just bring somebody with us to the next event. We have to be to the next day and the day after. And it's getting becoming more like this is who we are than this is who we're becoming. Um, at the rate we're going with gun violence, this is almost like this is the new America. And if that's the case, we can't wait on the next event. Dickle, advocate, and, you know, we can't wait on the next event. The perception, the perception 
Um, and I look at you, right? And inside that child was a smart kid, right? On the outside, people look at him and go, mm, I saw his mugshot on Channel 4. I saw his, mug, saw his mugshot in the newspaper, right? Piece of trash, wad you up, throw it in the trash can, be done with you, you know? And I think that anybody that's listening to this who may have perceptions or ideas or preconceived notions, right, of what a black man looks like who comes out of prison needs to understand that in each and every one of us there is something great, right? Yes. Because that's what you did, yes. right? Yes. Fine. People along your route, people in the high school in New York knew that there was something special in that brain of yours. You know, in my TED talk, I think I talk about an old lady, and I don't remember exactly who she was. And you know, I even remember she would tell me, "Baby, hold on, this ain't who you are. This is something you're doing." She would mm. say that to me, and I always resonated. Who was she? Um, she was, you know, I mean, I in New York, down in here, Ch- Charleston, Ackerby, you know, you know, running around, being on the corner, from corner to corner, and she would say, "Baby, baby this ain't who you are. This is just something you're doing." And um, I always remember that. You know, and I realized that she was true. That wasn't who I was. Think about all those gun violence victims, the ones that don't make it, the ones that are, that passed. Yeah. And the talents that they were never able to share with the world like you have. Yeah. 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 So, and, you know, I look at that. I I mean, I definitely look at my son, but I always look at that. You know, and even if I can talk about the the 15-year-old who murdered my son and the 17-year-old who was involved with it, you know, one thing that a lot of people kind of highlighted about my life was when I stood in the courtroom and I looked at them, I wasn't so content with them getting a lot of time. I was more, you know, concerned with them getting a lot of help. So I actually told the judge, you know, when it comes to their sentence, that's in your hands. I just want them to get some help. So I turned to both of them and I talked to them about finding a way to help themselves. Um, because Still in prison today? The 17-year-old is the 15-year-old who actually pulled the trigger, got what they call a juvenile life sentence at the age of 15. He was released from prison at the age of 18 on his 18th birthday, and he has since shot three other people. So he didn't get any help. And now he's actually um, in the adult jail awaiting the sentence on three attempt murder charges. Hmm. So You just got to keep working, man. Yes, sir. Sir, um, don't call me sir. It makes me feel old. Yeah, you got more gray in your beard than I do. <laughs> I do, right? That's the old church, you know. But uh, that's experience. That's experience, right? So I mean, yeah. I mean, it's it's a task. I mean, if I, you know, I say I'm up for it, I, it's not like I believe I am. I know I am. So far, you know, I've been able to, you know, compartmentalize. You know, I don't look at one teenager and think that's my son. Yeah, I look at him and I give him this, you know, benefit. You're, you're, you, you are who you are. Let's work from that space. You know, I don't put that on them and be like, you know, you know, you look, you know, I don't do that because my son was unique. He was him, and I, and I, and I have to do that in order for me to do this efficiently. You know, I can't look at every kid and say that was my, that could be my son or something like that. You know, I, I give them that, but you know, um, it's work to be done. Um, you know, I'm in schools now, working. I was at Star High School today. I'll be there every Wednesday now. I'm at Craig Mathis Charter High School, where I go every other Friday. Um, we have a book club in an elementary school. We just read books to fourth and fifth graders. So, you know, being in proximity, you know, proximate to the kids, telling them my story. You know, relationships. Every, every day we walk into this space at Ripple, there's this Mother Teresa quote that hangs on the wall mm-hmm. that says, I alone cannot change the world, but I can cast a stone across the water to create many ripples. Mm-hmm. And you'll never know. You'll never know by those pebbles that you throw in the water every day how far that ripple will reach and touch people. I love it. I love it. I love it. That is so real. I mean, I remember I'm a juvenile arbitrator, as I said with the solicitor office, and I also speak on the victim impact panel where I speak to juveniles who have committed one nonviolent offense. I do that once a month. And the first time I started speaking was like three years ago to these juveniles, and somebody said to me when I first started, it was like, if you can only get one kid, 
you know, you, you, you know, you've done your part. And then when I walk in the room and I look at like eight to nine kids and I look in their eyes and I said, like, I can't just have one. So that was the <laughs> thing, you know, but the ripple was real. You know, the ripple was real because my thought process is that, you know, that, you know, one opportunity, I think I can probably ripple and get all of them. You know, not one, I can throw one stone out, which is my one self, my one story. And, um, and then maybe that ripple does get everybody in that room. So I love that. I actually love that. But I see it exactly what, you know, that becomes that ripple. Well, I'm, uh, I'm grateful that you're part of our family here. And, you know, you're always welcome. And um, I love the work that you do, and and um, it's just part of the greater good that we're doing with all the nonprofits here. And I just blessed is a word that's thrown around a lot, but I'm blessed to know you. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. Uh, you know, we don't, you know we don't get into that, you know, Dean. <laughs> but I was just like, okay, you know, a little starstruck. But I was just elated. I was happy that you were such a personable guy, and you were in this space as you are such a personable and sociable guy. Never thought in the world I would be, you know, having this time and space with you and um, just appreciative of what the ripple represents. So delighted to be here. I talk about it a lot. That's a awesome. Lot, a lot. So hey man. We bleed the same. Yes. We cry the same. We laugh the same. Yes. All good. Good. Love you, man. Love you too, man. Thanks. My thanks to uh, Keith. Uh, for opening up and uh, sharing today. My thanks to you uh, for clicking on uh, to say your story. If you could uh, punch that subscribe button. I don't know. They, they tell me somebody needs to hit five stars or something. You could do that too. I, I hear that's great uh, for business. Uh, all I know is uh, we just continue to tell the stories of some pretty amazing and inspiring people right here in the low country who are helping those uh, in need and Keith Small certainly fits that bill my thanks to uh, everyone here at Ripple to Jerry Shear the uh, visionary behind this concept of a open office space uh, for nonprofits here in downtown Charleston but for now I'm Dean Stevens and this another episode of Say Your Story cause I'm finding my way back to you hey.